Good morning. I am Laser Weiss, and this is the Blazing Laser Show. Okay, I don't have a catchy theme song, whatever. Um, so Daryl Williams um, deliberately drove an SUV into a Christmas parade, injuring children and grandmothers. And what do we learn from it? That's an important question. Ow, I hate being bound by the news cycle. I find it dreary and not often useful. But I do like it when we can learn something real about people. We can use this incident to learn something real. Uh, not about Daryl Williams, but about culture and societies and how people believe, behave inside them. One of the things that the Torah is very concerned with, and to me all knowledge comes from the Torah, all human psychology is based on the Torah, the Bible, if you will. Um, and so whenever I try and bring lessons from things, I'm going to try and bring them from that perspective. What can we learn about Daryl Williams' behavior? Again, I waited to release this video because I didn't know much about him and I wanted to learn more. Unfortunately, uh, not a lot of information about his motives is forthcoming. I don't know if he's not speaking to police. But enough about his life has been revealed that we can try and talk about him from a proper perspective. Before we start, I want to point out something that's really, really bothering me. And that is that because this country has become so divided uh, politically, uh, divided shouldn't be in air quotes really, it's sadly true, um, many people on the right, instead of trying to learn proper lessons and actually figure out how to change the course that we're on, they've taken to trying to score points. Like there's a contest going on and if, and if we score more internet points then we win and I hate it and it hurts me and again, these are people who also have influence in the real world. So I'm only showing you tweets of people who in the real world also have followers and influence. But just, just look at some of the stuff that people are posting. I want to show you what the wrong response is, and then we'll get to what we could learn that's real and true. Okay, here's some of the wrong stuff. Had Daryl Brooks been black, no way police take him into custody alive. Zing! Yeah, it's cool. It's, it's a cute line from Jason Whitlock who... Uh, has a influential podcast, and he's a cool guy, and whatever. But how does that help us as a people to that we got a good zinger in? So a lot of people say, well, it's visceral. It's this visceral reaction because this is how they always react. And it okay, great. So so now it's it's us versus them, and we got our zinger. That you got your zinger. We got our zinger. Yes, it's great. Uh, I'm sorry, but again, if there's there's something to learn, this is not helping us learn it, all right? Let's go to the next one. Laverne Spicer, she's running for a, a government position in the real world. Let's see the media go after Daryl Brooks the way they did Kyle Rittenhouse. Got him. Uh, what's the point? I don't understand. I get, I get, again, I get the visceral reaction. I get the knee-jerk reaction. But what do we learn and how does that help us change society to point out the media's double standard? It doesn't. So why do it? Give me a second. I'm confident the media's coverage of Daryl Brooks in Waukesha will be just as accurate as their coverage of Kyle Rittenhouse in Kenosha. Proceed accordingly. <laughs> you know, you're missing out on a lot of the uh, visual humor if you're listening to this on a podcast. Um, but you're not missing out on much. Um, again, this is a guy who is on the radio, who is an editor, who is, I think he's on the radio, I'm not sure, but he works for some magazine. 
These are people in the real world who have influence, who have jobs. Why is this the reaction? Last one. Um, and this is just an online influencer, so it's not really so important. I'm waiting on the condemnation of Daryl Brooks' mass murdering of kids. I have yet to see any posts from celebrities, media, or Democratic politicians. All right. It's a point. I think Ben Shapiro makes this a similar point. Why is this the reaction of people? Like, what's happening that people are having this reaction? I think it's a very important question. I think the real answer is that people don't know what reaction to have. We've so lost in this country the idea of how to change society effectively, of how to improve society in a meaningful and effective way, that these dumb Twitter wars, I think, to people, they actually seem valuable and valid, right? Or, or, or not even on Twitter. I was watching a segment from Fox News, one of the most watched news companies in the nation, and a couple of the people sounded positively gleeful about the fact that like, ha oh, ha, look at how this guy acted. Kyle Rittenhouse was a hero and this guy, he's a murderer, look and he's on your side. Why are you gleeful? Some people got killed, children got hurt and killed. Why are you expressing this with like some sort of like glee? We, we got points and now you're gonna have to play your spin game to try and deny us your points. So what? So the answer is they don't know what to do. But don't worry, the Torah does. The Torah is very concerned with human psychology and how to design a proper society. I'd like to take a moment to look at an example that the Torah gives of a non-functional society, namely the society that existed before the flood. Let's see what we can learn. Kate's called Basar Balafani. If you wonder why I'm, I'm so into ancient texts, well, first of all, any Orthodox Jew is not going to wonder that. But these texts are pedigreed. We know that they're a thousand years old at the least if not more, handwritten copies of them. I mean, again, as a Jew, I know that they're older than that. But from a non-Jewish, secular perspective, there is more than enough evidence to show that this is not something that was written with modern social contrivances in mind and in reaction to modern social philosophies. These are texts that were written by people who really believed in this stuff and had no social conventions that prompted them to write it in a certain way. These are texts by people who genuinely spent their entire lives dedicated to explaining and the, the thoughts of God in the Bible. That was their life. And so it's not like me, you'll say, oh, well, you're just interpreting the Bible that way because of something, or what are you all? But these were people who had a, a tradition from their teachers about what things in the Bible meant and why God did the things he did. So let's see what they have to say. They are speaking here about the generation of the flood. Kate's called Basar Balafonai. The end of all flesh has come before me. What does that mean? Uh, the time has arrived to get rid of the world, essentially. The accusations have come before me. Mipnehem. The world was filled with robbery. Ezu Hamas. What is this robbery? Ezu Gezel. What is Gezela is a different form of robbery. So the Medrash on the Torah is asking, this is our sages, 
from the Talmud and the Mishnah, and they are asking what, what exactly was happening in the time of the flood that was so awful. Amar Rabbi Chanina, Hamas, you know what Hamas is? Enoi Sheva Pruta, something that's worth less than a nickel. A pruta is like a tiny, small amount of, the smallest possible uh, coin that had some worth. So it's estimated by today's standards they would be talking about something like a nickel. The Gazel Sheva Pruta, when you steal something, that's you're stealing something that has like more value, more worth. And and the uh, you know the, the sort of overall the the idea here is that something that's worth less than a nickel. What are you going to do? You're going to go to the cops and say somebody stole a grape from me. Could you could you chase him down, please? What did he steal? A grape. Oh man, like how many grapes? He stole one grape from me. I was eating a cluster of grapes, and he just grabbed a grape and he ran. Okay, I. <laughs> I got things to do, lady. Sorry. Right? So think about that. So what would happen? Do you want to know what the people at the time of the flood did? Here's what they did. A person, any random person. They would bring out a bowl filled with turmoisim. I don't know what turmoisim is exactly. I forgot. But it's some kind of small fruit, like a grape. Or something similar to that, maybe olives or something. I forgot what they are. Some type of small fruit that you put a large bowl filled with them, and maybe you go to the market and sell it, or I don't know. Somebody would come, and they would take less than a shavapruta's worth. They would take a grape, or an olive, just one, maybe an olive, not because those might have been worth more. I don't know. Point is, they would just take one, take one. And then the next guy would come and he would take another one. So that there was never any room to get them involved in a court case because we're going to do take out of court for a grape. It's like, Your Honor, we are here today. The accused stands before you. He has taken a grape. A grape, Your Honor! The purple kind. Anyways, um. And therefore, what would happen is they would just empty this guy's entire bowl, bucket, basket, whatever. And so he had nothing left. Now, let's picture a scene. Guy takes a, gathers a bushel of grapes. He goes to the market to sell them. Everybody who walks by takes a grape. Can't, no individual person can have the cops come after him. And yet, at the end of the day, the guy has no grapes left. And he also didn't get any money for them. And now he has nothing. Now he has to go home. He didn't sell anything. He made no profit that day. You're going to act in a way that's not kosher? I'm also going to act towards you in a way that's not kosher. Now, let's hold on a second. We have to focus on this magician. Think real carefully about what it says about a society. The magician says, God was in the process of deciding, should I destroy the world? The entire world. Should I flood it, destroy it, hit the reset button, we're going to start over? Should I do that? So what does the Medrash pick as the example of like how awful the world was? God says, well, they all steal from each other. And everyone who steals just takes less then a shovel fruit is worth. So what are you going to do? You're going to like take up the court for a grape? 
Of course not. And therefore, this guy's left with nothing. Because at the end of the day, everybody took a little bit. Okay, it's time to destroy the world. Um, okay, I mean, I get it's bad. It's bad that people have this like crazy notion in their head that if everybody just steals less than a grape's worth, then it's fine. But like, come on. <laughs> you gonna kill everyone for that? Like, is everybody? We're, everyone? There's something else that's even weirder. I'm gonna tell you something super weird. Remember, in this section of the Medrash, they were defining what Hamas is. Okay? But just look at the very next piece in the Medrash. You know what it says? Davar acher, kimala aretz Hamas. The world was filled with Hamas, with robbery. I'm Rabbi Levi. Hamas, you know what that is? I'll tell you what Hamas is. Right? I translated it as robbery before because in the context of the previous paragraphs, it was Hamas actually, according to Rabbi Levi, it's a different person, Hamas is avodas kochavim, idol worship. Hamas zagilia rois, also refers to uh, immorality. Hamas zeshvi chazamim, also murder. Hamas zavod chavim, also, um, oh, we said our worship party. Oh, and then he's, he's going to prove it from various different sources in the Torah that that could be referring to it. Um, doesn't Rebbe Levi seem like a little more reasonable? Like, according to Rebbe Levi, people were running around. There was no fidelity. Human beings didn't have any fidelity. They were completely immoral. People were worshiping pagan gods, which, by the way, as innocuous as that sounds, anybody who knows a little history knows that the pagan religions were vile, violent, and very destructive towards society, in addition to being, uh, on their own, an insult to God, which, you know, for those who say, well, I don't understand, so God is insulting, that's something that needs explanation, and if somebody was really interested, we could make an entire video, frankly, probably video series, probably take hours to truly explain the depth of why idol worship is truly so awful. If you didn't grow up as as somebody who learns uh, Torah philosophy, that that could sound like we're just kill people for that, like for bowing down to a stone idol. Yes, the answer is yes. But but again, we, we we need to. That's not the topic of this video. So let's just focus on the the ones that are easier to understand: immorality and um, murder. The world was filled with murder. Oh, that sounds a lot worse than people stealing grapes, don't you think? So why don't we just, what, what, so what's this previous piece in the Medrash that's like, yeah, Hashem was like, look, everybody's stealing grapes. Everybody's stealing like one slice of an apple. People are like, oh, you have an apple? I'm just going to take a slice. And then we like come to the judge and be like, your honor, this guy took a slice of my apple. Oh, wow. I, what about all these other people? Like, yeah, each guy took a slice of my apple. Like, what do you want from us? Like, we, okay, here's a penny. Go, go home. And then you don't have a court system because there's like people murdering out there and they can't get a court date because there's guys jamming up the court system with apple slices. We're not going to prosecute that. There's nothing we can do. God says, I got to destroy the world. People are stealing apple slices. Well, what about the murder? What, why, is it, why is this piece in the Medrash saying, okay, good question. I'm going to hit you up with one more question. If you handily trundle over to the end of the Parsha, that's the Torah portion, right? At the very end of uh, Bereshis, which is the very first Parsha in the Torah, it begins to talk about the corruption that was spreading in the world prior to uh, the flood. Hmm, if it would work. Hmm. 
It's freezing on me. Why? I don't know. We'll forget about it for a second. But it says, if I go here, is it? I am at a loss. My Safari has stopped working. Very, very professional outfit we are here. All right, you know what? I'll bring it up in a Chrome window. So let's see. Safari, we're good. Uh, Tanakh and Genesis, and chapter five. Okay, so, um, no, actually, that's not the one I want, anyway. Uh, Tanakh, Genesis, Voracious, and uh, we want the end of Voracious. So, in any case, God, oh, here it is. So, what happens is, it comes to the end of the, of the, of Parsha's Voracious, and, what does it say? It says, uh, Men began to increase. I apologize for that. Um, if I had better editing skills, I would probably slice it out of the video. But, um, oops. Anyways. <laughs> Okay, having programs crash on you is part of the podcasting learning experience, which we are going through here. When men began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them, the daughters of the Elohim, which is hard to translate because Elohim means God, but in this case, it doesn't mean God. So here they translate it as divine beings, but that's not actually correct, right? Um, Espinosa Adam, they saw the children of men. So Elohim actually can refer, and I believe according to Rashi, it does refer to the daughters of judges. These were, as Rashi says, um, oh, you know what? Let me, let me, let me, uh, let me switch this over here. Poof. Okay. Rashi on this Pasuk says, the sons of princes and rulers, right? These were the sons of the judges and the sons of the rulers. That's the traditional explanation that's given for this verse in the Bible. That is what it means, Elohim. It comes from the fact that the, the word Elohim uh, references mishpat, judgment. Um, and the Lord said, Shall I allow man to just roam the earth, living and basically committing sins? And, and then it goes on and on. And... At the end, it says this. Hashem's heart was broken, and he was sad that he created men. You know what? I'm going to erase man. I'm going to wipe out everything, all living beings, because they only exist in the service of man as well. And therefore, I'm going to wipe out all living beings from this world because I am regretful that I created them. But Noyach, he did good in the eyes of Hashem. And therefore, we go into the flood narrative where God saves Noyach. Okay, what's this all about? What are we doing here? Again, seemingly, this is a stage, a setting a stage for a much more powerful, theoretically, much more powerful 
um, reality where it makes sense to us that that God would destroy the world for this. Here we're talking about the sons of judges who are so corrupt that what they were doing is they were going over to other people's wives and they were taking them for their own. Um, I believe I saw somewhere, I could not find it, but if I recall correctly, there's someone who explains that what was happening was the sons of judges and rulers. Specifically, why does it reference B'nai Elohim, like the sons of judges and rulers? Because if you're the son of a judge and the son of a ruler, then you know what you can do? You see somebody's wife, you're like, hmm, I like that one. You go and you say, you know what? I want this girl. So you go to your dad and you say, I want this girl, but she's married. And so your dad says, who's she married to? And you say, hmm, Joe Schmo. You say, oh, okay. And then they trump up some kind of fake charges against Joe Schmo. And they throw him in prison or execute him. Nice. Now you can get his wife. How convenient. So the people in power were abusing their power and the world was heading on a spiraling downward path towards destruction because the corruption and abuse of those in power versus those who didn't have power was rampant. I don't know, I kind of feel like that's a better reason to destroy the world than people were stealing grapes. And not only that, it's literally in the Torah, the actual text of the Bible lacking any need for creative interpretation, says the sons of the Elohim were going and taking other people's wives, seizing them, taking them for themselves, right? Which certainly implies against their will, even if it doesn't say it outright. Either way, those women were married because it says they were. It says they took other people's wives, so what on earth is going on that then later it says, the end of all flesh has come before me. And we have the Midrashic literature all of a sudden um, telling us that what's happening is that there was Hamas. Right? It's a little funny. So, good. Here we go. Um, I think that this deserves an explanation. And the explanation is this. A diseased society takes on many forms. If we look at Daryl Williams' life, we see that Daryl Williams grew up in a diseased society. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that Daryl Williams' life followed a traditionally, classically tragic path that many people's lives follow in America. He grew up underprivileged. He grew up undereducated. He grew up in a society that glorified violence, that glorified victimization. That much is clear. You don't have to trust me. All this information is out there. There's a video that I cannot show um, where he talks about how one of the accusations, one of the many crimes on his, on his lengthy criminal record was that he was a, uh, an offender, a sex offender. And one of the reasons that he was considered a sex offender was because he took his girlfriend, who was the mother of his daughter, to Las Vegas and he was her agent to sell her services. And I refuse to say more than that. And it turned out 
that later they had a fight, broke up, and she went to the police and reported him. They arrested him for being an agent for her, which was illegal, and told him that among the other factors was that she was underage. And she was 16. He has a video about this where he talks about it. He defends himself saying that, well, she wanted me to, we both needed the money, plus I didn't even know she was 18. Well, let's think about the society and the culture that could produce a person like that. Here's a guy who's looking you in the face and telling you very sincerely in his video, it's clear that he's like emotional. He obviously means what he's saying, that it's not fear because I thought she was what? What did you think she was? Did you think she was 23? Did you think she was 35? If she was 16, maybe you thought she was 18. And in his worldview, this was like a normal interaction between a man and a woman who is the mother of his daughter. That he would take her and act as her agent. In addition, he has many social media posts where he talks about how the reason life is so hard in America for black people is because they're being held back by institutional racism. Some of these posts are vile. Here's a person who grew up in a certain type of culture and a certain type of society. Are we shocked that that type of society and that type of culture produced a certain type of result? The question would almost be, how could it not? Of course, a certain type of program is going to give out a certain type of result. That's really the lesson from the Midrashic literature where it talks about the time of the flood. Kate's called Basar Balafani. You know what? society was like at those times? People, this doesn't say sometimes, this was the routine. If you brought out a basket of grapes for any reason to sell, to enjoy whatever you were doing with your grapes, you know what would happen? Everybody would come along and take one grape. Hmm? Isn't that weird? Everyone, all the time? Yes. The world was filled it says, Ki mala ha'aretz chamas mipnehem. Mala, the word mala right here, it means full. The world was filled with people who behaved like this. This was the norm. It was acceptable behavior. I just took one grape. How do you get to a place in a society where the end result is a person who simply has no regard, but it's not like, oh, he's one crazy guy. It's this the entire society. The answer is that we see the end result of a diseased society. People no longer thinking that evil is evil. They've reached a point where they think that evil is fine. I don't know, because it's not clear, if people thought that, if the sons of the judges thought that what they were doing is fine, but I imagine so. It's very rare that people truly think they're doing something evil. I've almost never encountered that. Certainly Hitler didn't think that. If you would have asked him, he would have felt he was doing a wonderful service for the world to cleanse it of the Jews. Who really thought that they were doing something actually evil? People in cartoons? James Bond villains? Who thinks they're doing something genuinely evil? No one. Everyone has a reason that they think what they're doing is right. 
is righteous and good. We can reference the famous biblical story of David and Bathsheba, where David sends Bathsheba's husband to war. It's a pretext. He dies, then he can take her wife. David genuinely felt he did nothing wrong. Do you know why we consider David one of the great superheroes of the Bible? A man of greatness, of such spiritual uh, heights that he deserves for all time to be looked up to as one of the greatest people who ever lived? Because the Navi comes to him, the prophet of God, Nathan, comes to him and he says, David, you sinned. And you know what David does? David says, Chatasi, I sinned before God. We act like, oh, okay, what's the big deal? What's the big deal? The big deal is that most people literally don't think they're doing anything wrong. Do you know what it takes for someone with very little prompting to say, oh my gosh, you're right, I sinned. I did sin. I, I altered my perspective to justify the unjustifiable. I was wrong. I made a bad calculation. That's an incredible feat, a superhuman feat. David deserves fully to be counted among the greatest men who ever lived. His total acceptance of the fact that he was wrong is incredible. Do we give him enough credit? We come to people who are mass murderers. We come to people who, are, who, who do terrible things. And we, don't, we say, why did you do that? Well, here's why. It had to be done. It was necessary. No, you're wrong. You're evil. No, I'm not. You find me someone who thinks they did the right thing. And, and you get them to admit, you know how hard it is? You might have to fight with them for weeks and months and years until you can finally get out of them. Well, maybe I shouldn't have done it the way I did it. I was right. But maybe I shouldn't have done it that way. People won't even admit when they're openly hypocrites. You have people who stand in public and advocate for family values. And I'm a politician who believes in the type of small town family values. And I believe that marriage is between one man and one woman, right? How many stories have we heard of such people being found who are engaged in relationships, alternative relationships on the side? And then you confront them. What do they say? Yeah, they might give some kind of canned response like, I apologize to my community. Uh, it needs some time to blah, blah, blah. Do they mean it? Does anybody think they mean it? Do you really think what they mean is, I admit that I was completely wrong, totally and completely. No. What they mean is, well, you don't know what the stress I was like, and you can't imagine what I was going through, and if you had been me, you would have done the same thing. And, da, da, da. and I guess maybe I was a tiny, tiny little bit wrong but our crazy society is crucifying me and it's not fair and I'm just going to have to take a backseat for the good of this country. That's what they mean. You know it. Think about Daryl Williams. Do you think that Daryl Williams genuinely realizes how bad what he did was and the totality of it from an objective universal human sense? No. Of course not. And how could he? Many people are supporting him. Many people have said things, there are posts that you can find on the internet, and many people, even if they're not saying it in their heart, they're feeling it, they just know that it's, they can't really say it right now in public. Things like, well, he was a black man reacting to what 
how he's treated in society, and this is the kind of thing you can expect. Your chickens come home to roost. This is karma. There were people who said that after 9-11. Activists, both white and black, who publicly made statements like this. 9-11, this is America's chickens coming home to roost. This is the karma that we put out into the world. Right? And so now if you're going to go to Daryl and say, do you know that was wrong? Yeah, it was wrong. Why? Because I shouldn't have, uh, I shouldn't have killed people. Why? You know, I don't know, I shouldn't have killed do, do you think he thinks it's totally wrong? Or he thinks that, like, maybe it was a little wrong, maybe that wasn't the right way to go about getting the message across, but the message was really good, just not the best? Of course he doesn't realize the totality of the evil that he engaged in. He comes from a society that is producing this kind of evil wholesale. It's the education of the society. I have a habit of over-explaining things because the thing that to me that matters the most is clarity. We have to understand this is not the first time in human society this has happened. In the time of the flood, this was exactly what was happening. Society had become corrupted to the point where it was acceptable to act in a corrupt way. Human beings were so corrupt that the educational system of like a child grows up, what does he become? It had been destroyed. The child grew up and would become an adult who didn't understand right and wrong, who didn't know how to behave and how to act. And therefore, that child would be corrupt down to his roots. And he would raise another corrupt person in the next generation. And so on and so forth. And this was revealed in many different aspects. People might have been engaged in murder and immorality and idol worship. Judges and princes took advantage of their position to benefit their family with no fear of reprisal. The people stole from one another, always keeping careful, I guess, I guess for the little man, you know, for the big man, for the son of the judge, he obviously didn't care if it was a Shavuot or not. He was taking other people's wives. What about the people on the bottom of the totem pole? The people who were scared of the beat cops? Well, that's okay, I just took a grape. Everybody was corrupt, doing whatever corrupt thing they wanted. And God said this is an unsustainable system. So how do we change it? Well, something did change. The world changed, and that's why there was never another flood. Because before the flood, no one had started a religion based on the philosophies of God who transformed the world with his educational system. And I'm going to end with this, and it's important to make this last point. We call Abraham, in Hebrew, he's called Avraham Avinu, which in English translates to Abraham, our father. There's a reason that Abraham is referred to by this august title. Abraham was uh, an incredible person. The Rambam actually calls Abraham the uh, pillar of the world. He calls Avraham the Ad Shanoilad Amudai Shalolam. Until he says, this is what the Rambam says about Al Rambam, the Maimonides, one of the greatest Jewish philosophers who ever lived, writes Ad Shanoilad Amudai Shalolam. Until God, the world was spinning out of control after the flood, things were looking bad. 
until the pillar of the world was born. Who was that? That was Avraham Avinu, Abraham our forefather. I want you to realize something. This was after the flood. That means the flood happened, we hit the reset button, and mankind again. So first came Adam. Adam and Eve knew God. They knew who God was. <laughs> they were created by God. By the time Noah comes along, every single human being has forgotten about God, except for a select very few, Noah, his family. And everyone is corrupt and committing vile crimes. God hits the reset button. Guess what happens? Everybody falls back. In the, the sons of Noah, who again, they all know who God is, right? They just survived the flood. Bam, happens again. Until along comes Avram Avinu, the pillar of the world, says the great philosopher and writer, the Rambam, Maimonides. What did Avram do? How did Avram change the world so fundamentally? And what can we as a society learn from it? Well, Avram did actually do something kind of amazing. Avraham was different. Noah was a nice guy. He served God. But you know what he never did? He never started a religion. He never went and successfully convinced people that they should follow the ways of God. I don't know why he failed to do that, and I'm not here to speculate. But he didn't do it. But Avraham, Avraham did. Vayom Hashem al-Avram. After the story of the burning furnace, God says to Avram, I want you to go forth. And Avram says to him, okay. And he says, I'm Rabbi Yitzchak. And Avraham is now, by the way, the first person to philosophically discover the idea of God by himself. There was something special about Avram, which I, I sort of glossed over, but I shouldn't. Avram was not a direct descendant of the line of people who believed in God. Avram did not grow up in a, in, a, in a knowledge of God household. Like Noah grew up the descendant of someone who believed in God, and therefore he grew up knowing that God existed from his ancestors. Abraham did not. Avram actually grew up not knowing that God existed. That's something the Rambam specifically says. He never heard about God. And in his 40s, says the Rambam, he suddenly started thinking and questioning the world and philosophically by himself came to the conclusion there is a God. Okay? It's a, it's a parable. He gives a parable. He says, it's like a guy who walks around and one day he finds a mansion. Could there be such a... Beautiful mansion without a master. Tzitz love Balabira. Guess what? The Balabira looks down at him out of a window. And he says, Amrlai, uh, actually, you're right. Anihu Balabira. I am, in fact, the owner of this house. Kach lefishahaya Avram Avinu Aymer. Taymer Avram Avinu was the first person in history on his own to say, could this world exist without a master? Could such a world exist that was not created and designed intelligently? Hates its love, Hakadosh Baruch Hu v'Amr Lai Anihu Balabayis Anihu Balayilam. Rather, God said to him, "Actually, uh, yeah, you're right. <laughs> That's me. It's nice to meet you. I'm so glad someone finally asked." It sounds crazy, but he was the first person to ever do this. But that's not all Avraham did. Avraham did something else too, which was 
maybe extra, extra, extra special. Avram Avinu actually went and started converting people to this religion that he started. When he left, he took with him the souls that he made in Haran. Imagine if everybody, every scientist and doctor, every person in the world tried to get together and create a gnat. Do you think they could breathe into it the soul of life? Of course not. It's ridiculous. You can't, we, we would never, if life didn't exist, we wouldn't be able to create it. Right? And of course, we're not even going to address in this video the notion that life could exist accidentally. It's so silly and stupid. It's such an irrational point of view. But I could address it at length and we could discuss why and how and the stupidity of its irrationality. But I'm not addressing that in this video. So, so what does it mean, the souls that he made? Why does the Bible say, and the souls he made? What does that mean? He didn't make any souls. These are the people who he converted to his religion. Remember, Judaism didn't even exist. Avram Avinu had not been commanded by God to do this. You can read the Bible. It's not there. It just says that God, when he finally speaks to him, he says, I want you to travel somewhere. And Avram got up and he left. And all the people who he created came with him, says, says the Medrash. What does it mean that he created them? What do you mean he created them? Oh, okay, I'll tell you what it means. It means that he converted them to his religion. So why, if he was just a converting them, why does it say that he made them? It's to tell you that if you convert somebody, it's as if you created them. They are created anew from their conversion. Wow. Vayemer Asher Asa, why does it say Asher Asa that they made? Lamanemer Asher Asu, oh, sorry, Vayemer Asher Asa, it should have said Asher Asa that he made. Lamanemer Asher Asu that they made. Avram would convert the men and Sarah, his wife, would convert the woman. And there's actually a Medrash that explains how they would do this. They would set up meals. They would set up seudos. Avram would sit with the men and they would chill. It would be great. And Sarah would do the same thing with the women. And at the end of the meal, the people would get up and either they would say thank you or Avram would prompt them to say thank you. They ran a roadside inn type of situation. And they would say, you know, could we pay you? And Avram would say, no, you don't have to pay me. You don't owe me anything. It wasn't mine. They would say, what? Well, whose was it? He would say, oh, it was God's. And he'd say, God? God? Who's God? And he would say, oh, uh, actually, he created the world. And they would say, what? Um, no, my stone idol created the world. And then if he had to, he would engage them in his whole debate. Oh, your idol created the world? What do you worship? Oh, you worship the sun? Well, that's weird because the clouds can cover the sun. Oh, you worship the clouds then? Well, the, the wind can move the clouds. Oh, you worship the wind? Well, the mountains can stop the wind. And, and, and I don't know if you ever heard the Abrahamic, uh, you know, obviously it's more complex than that, but basically he would engage them and he would get them to start thinking. And then eventually he would be able to convince them that, you know what, you're right. This, this God thing is reasonable and it's rational and it's sound and it's logical. And through that, he would convert people to his religion. God never told him to do this. 
Avraham Avinu, on his own, discovered that God existed and went out and tried his hardest to convince people and started a religion. And he changed the entire world. My point is, do you know how hard it is to be in Avraham? Avraham wasn't the first person to ever think of the idea that there was a God. Indeed, even by Noah, although Noah did know it from a tradition that there was a God, Noah knew that there was a God. Why didn't he start this religion thing? Noah, also the Bible testifies that he was a great man. What about all the other great people who lived? <clears throat> we know from the Torah there were two other people named Shem and Aver. They were very great people. They lived. Noah's grandson, son. Why didn't they start a religion? Why didn't they do it? What about all the other people? Enosh, the grandson of Adam, the first man. The Rambam says that in the time of Enosh, they had already started worshipping idols. Why didn't Enosh start a religion dedicated to teaching people about God? What's happening here? The answer is, it's really hard. I think it's easy. We have this notion in our heads that like, if we just get rid of all the annoying Democrats and the liberals and the criminals and everything would be great. No, it wouldn't. Do you know what would happen if we could get rid of all those people? more of them would pop out of the woodwork. Because it's really, really hard to start a religion based on morality and good behavior and acting in the way that God wants and keep it going. That's really hard. Not just a little hard, super duper incredibly hard. You know how hard it is? It's so hard that the first guy who ever did it, God said, I choose you and I'm going to make a covenant with you and you're going to be the father of every nation, you are now considered the, the human being in history who was the first person to answer the call of the divine, the father of my chosen nation. Yeah, that's how hard it is. It's that hard. It's insanely, incredibly hard to fight against the tide of humanity and the nature of humanity, which trends in an unhealthy downward direction. We look at people like Daryl Williams. They're a product of some normal human behavior. They are not the exception. They are the rule. Again, it's not him personally. The point is that we should not be surprised if human society starts to become more and more depraved. God didn't destroy the world in a flood like two years after he made it. It was around a thousand years. If I recall correctly, maybe a little bit less or more. I forget the exact numbers, unfortunately. I'm embarrassed. There was a long time and many generations came and went until finally society had reached such a low point that God said, I can't, this is it. I can't, we can't do this anymore. I can't, it's over. It took a lot to get there. And it kept getting worse and worse and worse. So first you started off with maybe the occasional murder, maybe the occasional infidelity, maybe the occasional theft. And then each generation got a little worse and a little worse and a little worse. And I bet there were people along the way who were like, can you believe all this murder that's going on? I mean, what do we do about this? We have to stop this. There might have even been some pundit somewhere in the time of the flood who was like, you know, I think we need to get rid of all the people who live on the eastern Mediterranean peninsula. Those guys are the worst. But that's not 
That's not what it's about. It's not about our team and your team and their team and scoring political points and electing people with a letter or this letter or that letter. Yeah, there might be something there. I'm not saying there's nothing and none of these things are true and none of these things have any basis in reality and having more police might help might help put a structure in place where it makes learning proper morals easier. Yeah, there's a lot of different complicated factors. But society overall trends a certain way because it always has. And because human beings always trend that way. And there's always only ever been one antidote. And that's the antidote of Avraham Avinu. To teach people the religion properly, fully, from the philosophy, from its roots, to understand how to be a better person and why you should be a better person and what you can do to be a better person. And that's all for today. I hope you found that interesting. Um, I hate to ask this every time, but you know, apparently it's, uh, it's tradition around these parts. If you like this video, please hit the like button. If you like this podcast, please hit the like button. If you enjoyed it, please share it with your friends. Recommend it to people. Let me know. Comment. Uh, don't, don't just comment because it's fun to do so, but I actually um, read comments and I will respond to them. So wherever you are, whether you're watching this on YouTube or Rumble or listening to it on a podcast, if there's a way for you to communicate with me, please do so. If you have a question on anything I said, please ask it. This has been Laser Weiss. This is the Blazing Laser Show. And I hope that we have a happier topic to discuss next time. But for now... Da -da 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 -da. Okay, right. I really do need to get a theme song. Bye-bye!